Amen. At this time, I'm going to ask Brother Nathan Bird if he'd make his way up to the platform. Brother Bird is a West Coast Baptist College graduate. He oversees the elementary department here at Lancaster Baptist Church. I know that our kids personally absolutely love this man, and he is passionate about what he does. He is such an encouragement, and any time that you are able to spend around him, I encourage you to do so, because you will come out with a smile on your face. The joy of the Lord is all over him. He co-authored the book, Revival Today. He's been married for the last five years to his wonderful wife, Alyssa. They are a powerful team in the ministry together. Again, he is a huge encouragement. He is a passionate preacher, and he loves West Coast Baptist College. Let's all stand today and welcome him to chapel services. Thank you so much. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 18 is where we will be this morning. It is a blessing to be back in West Coast Baptist Chapel. I have missed it, and uh, I think that's one of the uh, main things that graduates say that they miss about college life is uh, being able to get together every day around the Bible in chapel. And there are so many great memories that I have of being in chapel and so many decisions as well. And I hope you don't take that for granted. I hope you don't take for granted that you're hearing some of the best preaching in America, these preachers that are coming through uh, who are investing their lives into you. And and uh, make sure that you treat them like royalty when they come in and have them sign your Bibles and uh, encourage them and, and help them uh, and, and help them in that way. Second Kings chapter 18, I would like to say that I'm glad that a brother David Adams has made it uh, to chapel today um, because I think he needs what I'm about to preach. Um, I think he should get off Facebook and uh, go out soul winning a little bit. And uh, anyway, that's all I'm going to say about that. But uh, Brother David Adams is a great friend of mine, and uh, we've been having fun kind of going back and forth a little bit uh, with some silly things. But um, I'm thankful he was able to make it today. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse number 1. The Bible says, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty and five years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abbi, and the daughter, uh, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. He removed the high places, and broke the images, and cut down the groves, and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. For he clave to the Lord, and departed not from, the follow, from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the example of Hezekiah. And I pray that in the next few moments that you would help us to be able to learn from his godly example and be able to apply these principles to our lives. Lord, thank you for the privilege of serving you. Thank you for the privilege of having your word in our hands this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would please touch our hearts and I pray you would draw us closer to you through what we hear from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. High places are referred to over a hundred times in the Old Testament scriptures. 
Now, high places were unauthorized shrines scattered throughout the land that were unsanctioned for worshiping Jehovah. These shrines were scattered across Israel and Judah and included anything from Jehovah worship to pagan child sacrifice. Now, there was a great variety of high places in the land, but most of them had some common features. There was at least an altar there where the priest would make sacrifices. There would be a stone pillar or obelisk as well. There would be a tree or pole that the Bible refers to many times as the groves. And then there would also be a laver there for ceremonial washing. Now, there were various forms of high places in the Old Testament days, but all of them were explicitly forbidden by the Pentateuch. Now, there were, number one, uh, high places left from Canaanites. And as Joshua came through and conquered the land, God had given the children of Israel explicit instructions to destroy all of the high places that were left over by the Canaanites. Exodus chapter 34, verse number 12. Take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, with whither thou goest, lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. Be, but ye destroy their idols, break their images, and cut down their groves. Numbers 33, 52. Then ye shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, and destroy all their pictures, and destroy all their molten images, and quite pluck down all their high places. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, 5. But the Thus shall ye deal with them. Ye shall destroy their altars and break down their images and cut down their groves and burn their graven images with fire. Deuteronomy 12, 2. Ye shall utterly destroy all the places. God was very clear to the Israelites that when you go into the promised land that you need to destroy all of the high places that were left over by the Canaanites. But there were also high places in the Old Testament that were not left over by the Canaanites. They were built by the Israelites in pagan worship. Uh, Leviticus 26 uh, explicitly forbids this as well. And if you will not uh, hear for all this hearken, hearken unto me, but walk contrary unto me, unto me, I will destroy your high places and cut down your images and cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols and my soul shall abhor you. Very strong language that God has for the Israelites. He says, not only are you supposed to destroy all of the high places that are left over, but also you will not build high places for yourself as well. And then lastly, there is also a type of high place that is kind of the controversial one. Uh, this is the one that we'll probably refer to most in our message this morning. And these are the high places that were built for Jehovah God worship. These were high places that the Israelites built themselves that where they, uh, they worshipped the one true God. But Deuteronomy is very clear that they should not be doing this either. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse number 13. Take heed to thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest, but in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of thy tribes, there thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there, sh there thou shalt not or thou shalt do all that I command thee. And so God is very, very clear that not only are you to destroy all of the high places of the Canaanites, and not only are you not supposed to erect different high places to worship pagan gods, but thirdly, you should not be erecting high places just from a whim, just because you feel like it, to worship the one true God. 
And as we uh, discuss these high places this morning, we need to understand the context of all of these commands that God had given to Israel, God had given to the kings, God had given to Hezekiah and the Pentateuch, but many of the kings ignored them. Not only did Hezekiah have the instructions from the law, but he also had clear commands from the prophets. Uh, prophets like Amos and Hosea and Micah all condemned these high places. And even after Hezekiah, God continues to forbid, forbid these high places in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. Now, it wasn't that clear cut, though, for the Israelites. There is one reference in the Bible that is kind of a neutral reference to high places, and that is found in 1 Samuel chapter 9. If you remember the story, uh, the prophet Samuel uh, is anointing the future king Saul. And Saul comes to the high place where Samuel is offering uh, sacrifices, and he is also uh, having a, hosting a feast for many of the men in Israel. And the Bible does not condemn this, but we must remember that the Bible does not commend it as well. And we have to understand this one neutral reference in the Bible to high places was not an excuse for the children of Israel to have these set up all across the land. God had given them clear instructions from the Pentateuch and from the prophets that they were not to uh, erect these high places. Now, it's no surprise that rebellious kings of Israel and Judah filled the land with these high places. The first king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, uh, set up these high places, and Josiah, over 300 years later, tears them down. Uh, the first king of the southern kingdom of Judah, Rehoboam, a uh, the land, the Bible says, for they also built them high places and images and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. We also read about a man named Ahaz, who was Hezekiah's father, and he sacrificed and burned incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. This was something that the land was filled with as the, the culture was so strong during that time. But for over 200 years, what baffles me is that all of the good kings of Israel kept the high places as well. Hezekiah is the first reference to a king completely destroying every high place in Judah. We could start with Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 3, he sacrifices on the high places before he receives wisdom from God. King Asa, 1 Kings 15, 14 says, But the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was perfect with the Lord all his days. Kings like Jehoshaphat, Jehoash, Uzziah, Azariah, Jotham, all of these kings who the Bible says were right before God, but there's always a little notation there from the word of God that says, but, or nevertheless, they did not remove the high places from the land. The fact is that Hezekiah was the first king of Judah over 200 years to destroy the high places. I think a legitimate question this morning is why did it take so long for a righteous king to destroy all of these high places in the land? The answer would be that the Israelites were entrenched. They were steeped in a form of religion that would not allow God to penetrate every high place in their own hearts. These physical high places represented spiritual high places in their hearts where God was not allowed. 
And we have to understand this morning that God demands the highest place in our hearts. Very quickly, let's examine four high places that we should pull down in our own hearts. I try to be careful with the application here to make sure that every application is in context from what Hezekiah was dealing with. I believe the first application we could find here in this passage is that we see the high place of culture. The high place of culture. You look at verse number four. He removed the high places and break down the images and cut down the groves. Many times as the writers of Kings and Chronicles refer to the high places, they're also referring to groves. They're also referring to images. There was, there was kind of a package deal with all of these different things that had penetrated the culture of Israel. And yet we have one man, one king who was willing to defy the culture of his day to do what God commanded to do. And I, I think the application is very clear this morning that God is still looking for men and women who will look at the clear instructions of Scripture and say, no, I don't care what my culture says. I don't care what even the Christian religious culture says. I am going to stand on one thing, and that is the Word of God. Now, we have to ask, why were the high places so condemned in the first place? Why was this such a big deal to God? Why was he so clear with them to destroy these high places? Well, the original high places that we referred to a minute ago were left by the Canaanites and they were a direct assault on God's worship. We read in Numbers chapter 22, as early as the time of Balaam, that when Balak asks Balaam to come and curse the children of Israel, that he takes him to the high place of Moab. This was a place where the Moabites were worshiping idols and were participating in evil worship uh, to the wrong gods. And so this was even found so earlier, early as Numbers that this was such an a, a important part of Canaanite culture. Scholars describe the high places as predominantly Canaanite in origin. High places were common in the ancient Near East and seem to have been the normal places of worship for Canaanite religions. From the Old Testament denunciations, it is clear that the high places had a, a central part in popular religion. This was something that was the popular thing to do in that day. It was so entwined with the culture of that day that many of the kings were not willing to oblige them. We look through uh, archaeology and we see that many high places have been discovered today. There was a Moabite high place that uh, even is referred to in, in the book of Numbers uh, that was described in the world famous uh, Moabite stone. There, most of these high places have uh, many uh, bones and pottery scattered all across, uh, insinuating that this was, these were eventually destroyed uh, from uh, the nation. We also see a high place from the time of Jeroboam that's been discovered, most likely the actual one he built there to honor the golden calves in the northern kingdom. This was discovered in Dan. We also have a later high place that was discovered in Petra, and this was discovered because it was preserved in solid 
the rock. And this gave archaeologists a, a, a view of what a, a high place and the design of a high place would have been back in those days. But we can see all the way back to the time of Abraham that there has been a high place discovered in Megiddo. And this high place dates all the way back to just the early years of human history. That this was, this was such an important part of the Canaanite culture. This was such an important part of the culture of their day. An undeniable link existed between the high places and this undeniable link was between these high places and the idolatrous Canaanite culture. The Tyndale Bible Dictionary says, and I quote, at these pagan high places, sacrifice of animals and sometimes of human beings took place and religious prostitution or homosexual acts were common. It is natural that, the, that such practices would develop in a context of sympathetic magic where promiscuity was supposed to uh, influence animals and crops. And so this was, this was not only bowing down to an idol, these were some serious moral sins that were going on in these high places. To draw an application, God commands us to reject sinful culture in New Testament Christianity as well. 1 John chapter 2 is very clear, verse number 15. Love not the world. Some people say the Bible is really complicated. I think that's really simple. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. In 1 John chapter 1, John says, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are all of the world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us, but he that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now we have to be honest this morning though. Not everything in our culture is bad. Not everything in our culture is evil. God has not called us to uh, a, a Mennonite way of life. God has not called us uh, to forsake all technology. We, we understand that smartphones and texting and technology and everything that we, is part of our culture, those are not evil things. Those are amoral objects. They can be used for good or they can be used for evil. So how can we reach our culture? How can we relate to our culture how, without being changed by our culture? I think that's a discussion that has been talked about in numerous blogs and numerous posts and numerous people who have been so concerned about reaching our culture and that our culture is going to look at us as some type of a black sheep because we're so different than they are. There are certain aspects about our culture that are sinful and that are not sinful. So when someone's talking about relating to our culture... We need to realize that we can't just lump all culture all in, the same, all in the same bucket and just be fine with that. We have to understand that there are things about our culture that are fine. There are things that are not evil and there are things that are definitely evil. So where do we draw the line? I think that's a discussion that has been going on for many years now. Where do we draw the line between us and our 
culture. Well, I think Romans chapter 14 gives us a little bit of an insight on this. And we don't have the time to read this entire chapter, but I will say this, that a lot of people try to take little uh, bits of this chapter and try to uh, try to confuse people or try to say that, you know, we just need to plunge in and jump all into our culture and doesn't, there's no difference whatsoever. We got to read the whole chapter in context to understand what Paul is saying here. But just the first three verses, Romans chapter 14, verse number one, Paul opens this discussion with this verse. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. All right, stop right there. Tap the brakes. Before Paul even starts talking about uh, the meats and people who don't eat meat and people who eat meat offered to idols and people who believe that's sinful and all of the different discussions that were going on in first century Christianity, he stops and he says, before we delve into that, I want you to know that him that is weak in the faith receive him, but don't receive him to doubtful disputations. Don't receive him to just argue. Don't receive him to just kind of include him and, and act like nothing's wrong. You need to receive him and show the love of Christ and the peace of Christ, but don't just ignore his sin. Look at verse number two. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. So Paul is saying here, there are parts of culture that are not wrong, and for those gray areas, I think we need to be able to give and take a little bit. For those things that are gray, for those things that some people say, uh, here's, here's uh, uh, meat after idols, I can't partake in that. Great! Here's meat that are, is that, I'm not going to eat that, but the other guy says, I will eat that. Great. That's awesome. Paul says, you know, we need to live in the peace and the love of Christ. Now, here's a couple of principles on where to draw the line. And I'm not an expert at this by any means. Okay. And I know there's a lot of people even in this room who could uh, give a, a lot clearer principles about this topic. But here's just some principles that I found from the Bible to help us with where do we draw the line between us and culture? Well, number one, we should obey the clear commands of scripture. I think that's a given. Okay. A lot of these guys who are trying to blur that line between us and the world, they're just ignoring clear commands of Scripture. I, last time I checked and last, that sermon we heard a couple weeks ago from Larry Chapel about that a Christian should not be drinking alcohol. That's what the Bible teaches. That's not a, a, a topic of debate. All right. That's not something that we need to just keep getting on Facebook and arguing about all the time because it's not worth it. It's, it's a clear command of scripture. It's so clear to someone who is following the word of God. And that's just a, an example. But there are so many other discussions out there that if you just looked at the clear commands of scripture, it would be taken care of right there. There would be no argument. There would be no reason to keep arguing and arguing and bringing up these different topics. So number one, obey the clear commands of Scripture. Number two, serve one master. Culture is not our master. We want to reach our culture. We want to reach those who are in this world with the gospel of Christ. But they are not our master. They do not dictate how we do ministry. God is our master. Matthew 6, 24, verse that we've all memorized. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Galatians chapter 1, verse number 10. I think this is such a clear verse with this topic. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. 
We are not man worshipers. We are not here to please those who are sitting in the pews. We are not here to tickle their ears. I thought of an example uh, this summer. We were able to go to New England and uh, see a different sites uh, in revival history. And one of the, the places I was really excited about was a church that George Whitfield had started uh, in Massachusetts. And just on the border between Massachusetts and, uh, and New Hampshire is this town, Newburyport, where George Whitfield actually preached in a different church. And the pastor didn't believe in, in salvation by grace. He got up on the pulpit and he preached salvation by grace. Half the church got saved and they started their other church. All right. And so this is the church that broke off from uh, George Whitfield's preaching. And as we were walking around and seeing this historic church, finally, the part that I was looking forward to the most was George Whitfield is actually buried underneath this pulpit. All right. So he took us all the way down to the crypt. And we walked in, and the next picture here is the picture of George Whitfield's tomb underneath the pulpit. Now, unfortunately, there is a, uh, the pastor of this church is a woman. And so I, I thought that it was very uh, ironic that a woman preacher is preaching over George Whitfield's tomb. I'm sure he's flipping over every Sunday. Um, but... George Whitfield is, is underneath this pulpit, and we were able to take some pictures and see the, the skull there is a representation of his skull. It's a replica. It's kind of weird. But it gets weirder, okay? So George Whitfield dies. We saw the house next door that he died in. He preached his last sermon from that window of the second story. And uh, he, he uh, died in that house. He was actually scheduled to preach in this church the next morning. He died that night. The pastor was didn't really know what to do. My guest speaker just died Saturday night. And so they had a funeral for him and they took his body and they paraded it through the streets because they loved George Whitfield so much. And eventually they put him in the tomb under the pulpit and, and a guy named, you might recognize his name, Aaron Burr, kind of a controversial guy in American history. He was going to some battle and he wanted to go see George Whitfield's body for good luck. And so the, the uh, church member took him down to the crypt. He said, would you mind if you'd open up the tomb so that we could see the body of George Whitfield? And so they did. And, and for somehow, while the guy was not looking, Aaron Burr clipped off a piece of George Whitfield, finger or toe or something, and thought that that would be a good luck piece for his battle. Well, he lost the battle. It wasn't a good luck piece. But it started a tradition and so everyone who came to Newburyport, Massachusetts, wanted to see George Whitfield's tomb. But not only his tomb, they asked the guy to open up the tomb so they could see his body. And people were snipping off pieces of George Whitfield as souvenirs for uh, their trip. And so um, eventually, about mid-1800s, okay, so over 100 years has passed. And uh, eventually the church kind of got tired of it. <laughs> And so the church put out in the newspaper uh, that if you have a piece of George Whitfield, please send it back. <laughs> and so they said, we're going to solve this problem. We're going to put the tomb in a crypt. We're going to seal it. As you just saw in that picture, it's sealed with slate. And so no one can get in there. No one can get any more souvenirs. But before we seal it, we want to make sure that all of his pieces are back where they need to be. And so the, all, of, all of these pieces of George Whitfield are being sent through the mail to the church. And so they even showed us a box. It was about this big that the box had George Whitfield's arm in it. 
and, uh, and they showed us the box. And they said in the mid-1800s, when they got the arm, they paraded it through the streets because everyone wanted to see the arm of George Whitfield. And so all of these crazy things are going on. They received rib cages back. Um, just, just crazy things coming in the mail. Well, finally, they get it all together and they seal it. Um, and, and no one, and I was not able to get a souvenir of George Whitfield that day. <laughs> now, that story is kind of a silly illustration. But do you see how the human nature just wants to start worshiping a person or start looking at someone and, and lifting them up higher than they ought to be lifted up? We have to be so careful in our culture that we don't place men on platforms that, uh, that don't deserve to be placed on platforms. And we need to make sure that we don't lift men up uh, higher than what God would allow us to do. And we need to make sure that we are not preaching and that we are not holding services and worshiping God to please men. Third principle, very quickly, ask God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. James chapter 1, verse number 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Ask God for wisdom. There are a lot of gray areas in our culture, and, and God needs to give us wisdom to be able to deal with that. Avoid the example of Solomon. I thought it was interesting, as we mentioned before, that Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3 uh, sacrifices to Jehovah God on a high place. Immediately after that, God comes and gives him wisdom. And so God gives him this wisdom that will surpass anyone else who has ever lived or ever will live. And right after that, in the next verse, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse number 15, Solomon's not sacrificing on high places anymore. See what he did. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream, and he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and offered peace offerings and made a feast to all his servants. So God gives him wisdom. He understands, I shouldn't be in this high place anymore. I need to go sacrifice to the, in, at the ark of the covenant where God has ordained that we make sacrifices at, this, at the tabernacle. And so he goes and he makes this sacrifice. Later he builds the temple and he even centralizes Israel's worship even more than it was then. And the temple is the one place where sacrifices should be given to God in an orderly, decent way. And yet when Solomon rejects wisdom and he starts marrying wives from other nations, then what does he do? The last chapter describing his life says he's sacrificing on the high places again. We need to ask God for wisdom with these situations. We need to ask God for wisdom in these decisions that we would not be guilty of having the high place of culture in our heart. Romans 12, 16, be of the same mind, one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceit. Last principle, move on to the next point. Number four, keep a humble and heavenly mindset. Keep a humble and heavenly mindset. Jesus is describing his second coming in Luke chapter 24, and he says, men's hearts failing for them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. Jesus says, when I come back, there are going to be people all around who are so consumed with earthly things 
they're going to miss it. And finish the verse. He says, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. He says, there's so many people that are going to be like this, focused on things of this earth. When the powers of heaven are shaken, they're going to miss it. They're going to miss the amazing return of Christ because they're so consumed with all of the things of this world. And we need to make sure that we are not consumed with our culture, that that is not the thing that is dictating our ministry and our ministry philosophy. We need to make sure that just as Colossians chapter 3, verse number one says, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your effects on, affections on things above and not on things on the earth. The high place of culture. Secondly, the high place of compromise. The high place of compromise. Finishing up verse number four in 2 Kings chapter 18. He removed the high places, break the images, cut down the groves. That's all the, the dominant culture of his day. And he break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. And he called it Nehushtan. Now we don't have time to get all of this. But we understand the story of, of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. Well eventually they still had this. And they broke it up or they worshipped it as an idol. Now this was kind of a compromising thing for the children of Israel. This was saying we worship God, but we're also going to include some Canaanite worship in here too to just make everybody happy. Now the high places were a symbol of that. Uh, Canaanite origins of these high places and the fact that even as they conquered the land, the Canaanites could say, these high places were built by Abraham. These high places were built by Isaac. These are places in Bethel and places in Gibeon where, where, where your forefathers built these high places. And they would try to compromise with them and say, hey, we're both on the same page. One source said that they intended to legitimize their adoption by Israel to claim that they had already been Israelite. And apparently it worked. Because they didn't obey the commands of God. They did not destroy the high places that God had commanded. Like some Bible dictionary says, while the high places certainly were used for the worship of Canaanite deities, the more common use, at least during the times of Israelite dominance, was to use high places for the worship of Yahweh while continuing Canaanite practices. This was a place where it didn't matter who you were sacrificing to. We're all sacrificing to the same person. This was a place where you, know, you can sacrifice to Baal. You can sacrifice to Jehovah. It doesn't matter. We're all just going to get together and sing Kumbaya. Well, Deuteronomy 16, verse number 21 forbade this. God says, thou shalt not plant thee a grove of any trees near unto the altar of the Lord thy God, which thou shalt, which shalt, thou shalt make thee. In the context of high places, Ezekiel 43, 8 tells us in their setting of their threshold by my thresholds and their posts by my posts and the wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed. Wherefore, I have consumed them in my anger. You know, one of the kings we mentioned was King Asa. And he, uh, in 2 Chronicles 14, verse number 5, the Bible says that he removed all the high places of Israel. And in 2 Kings chapter 15, the next chapter, the Bible says, but the high places were not taken away. And that's apparent contradiction. I think we can resolve that fairly easily. Asa removed the high places of the pagan origin, but he didn't remove the high places that were worshiping Jehovah. It was still against God's law. Both of them were wrong. But Asa said, you know what, I'm going I'm to get rid of the blatant sin but the compromise and just kind of, you know, the mixing of everything, that, I'm just going to let that go. I'm going to tolerate that. You know, we have a lot of Christian buzzwords today. 
uh, Uriri blogs and listen to podcasts and all these different things. Words like contextual, uh, contextualization, uh, engaging the culture, organic outreach, life change, doing life together, uh, authentic community. These are buzzwords that uh, people just keep throwing out all the time. And there's nothing really wrong with these buzzwords. But I, I wonder why we never hear the buzzword of separation. I wonder why we keep ignoring this clear doctrine in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 14. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And Paul continues and he says, look, don't be linked together with the world. Don't be compromising your faith with unbelievers. James chapter 4, verse number 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. But then a lot of people would say, well, that's the world. What about Christian brothers? We're all saved. We're all on our way to heaven. We just need to join arms and, and uh, just kind of ignore all of our differences. Well, I'd like you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He refers back to a letter that he previously wrote them that is not in the canon of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he's writing specifically about the man living in uh, fornication uh, blatantly in the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 9, Paul says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. So he said, before, I wrote you a letter already that said, don't be messing around with this. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must he needs go out of the world. So he said, I already told you to get out of the world. Don't be fellowshipping with unbelievers. But look what he says in verse number 11. But now I have written unto you, now I'm going to build on that, not to keep company if any man that is called a, what's the next word? Brother. Be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. Paul says, look, you, you guys got the whole separation from the world down. I already wrote to you about that, but I'm going to build on that in this letter and tell you, even if it's a brother who's living in blatant sin, even, it's a, even if it's a brother who is covetous, a sin that we, I mean, we, we place sins on different you know, levels, and covetous doesn't seem to really be a high one in our, uh, in our mindset. But he says, even someone who is covetous, get rid of it. Don't be fellowshipping with him. Don't be eating with him. And I get sick of people in my generation who wants to go to different conventions and different uh, denominations who we've already split from. We've already stood for the truth of God. And yet now my generation wants to go back and dabble in it again. We'll hit that later on in the conclusion of this message. But listen very carefully. We cannot be the generation of compromise. We must stand for the truth of the word of God. Thirdly, I see the high place of confusion. The high place of confusion. Hezekiah is being bombarded by Sennacherib, king of Assyria, later in this passage. Sennacherib sends a guy named Rabshakeh to come and to give some speeches and propaganda to the children of Judah. 
Verse number 22, Rabshakeh says, Now therefore I pray thee, give pledges to my Lord, the king of Assyria, and I will deliver thee 2,000 horses if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. He's saying, man, you gotta, you got to be able to do this. You gotta, we're going to reward you for compromising with us. Verse number 22, But if ye say unto me, we trust in the Lord our God, is not that he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away and hath said to Judah in Jerusalem, ye shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? He says, look, isn't, you're putting your trust in God. Isn't that the same God you were worshiping at these high places? Oh, he was in touch with the culture. I mean, he knew what was going on in Judah. And he's confusing them. Compromise will always lead to confusion. One scholar says that he's researched different uh, high places in archaeology. He says that there are a variety of rituals with different objectives. There's really just no clear set way of how they worshipped at these high places. There were earthen and field stone altars that were slightly elevated and used for offerings to Yahweh. Low altars used for offerings not dedicated to Yahweh. Altars with bases, altars without bases, altars with horns, altars without horns. Round-shaped altars, square-shaped altars, rimmed altars, unrimmed altars, larger and smaller altars. All of these different types of altars, there was no set, decent orderly way of worshiping God at these high places. There was confusion. Some of them had house-like structures to cover them. Some of them were open air. Some of them were cemeteries. All of these different high places are so different types. There was so much confusion in the worship of God in these places. And we have to go back to 1 Corinthians 14. And we have to understand what Paul is saying at the end of this chapter in verse number 26. How is it then, brethren, when ye came together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying... Verse number 32, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all churches of all the saints. Verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. God has no room for confusion. We cannot give in to the culture. We cannot compromise because that will lead to confusion in the pews. That will lead to confusion in our church. James chapter 3, verse number 16. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. Lastly, and we'll close, the high place of convenience. I think this is really where it hits home for us. Most of us here in this room are probably not compromising with culture. That's, that's a doctrinal thing. And I hope no one in here is, is doing that. I hope no one in here will do that because you'll have to give your diploma back to West Coast. All right. I, I hope you guys are strong on that. You know what the last high place, the last reason that this was such a stumbling block for the Israelites was convenience. Why do I need to trek all the way to Jerusalem to worship God? Can't I just do it here? Why do I need to go on this, this long journey, get dusty and sore and cranky to get to Jerusalem when there's a high place right in the town that I can just worship here, everything's all right. This was something that was convenient for them. It was something that was completely against God, but they made allowances for it because it felt good. It made them feel better. 
Leviticus 17 verse number 3 tells us that we can, they, they were not allowed to uh, be compromising. They were not allowed, uh, verse number 3, What man soweth there be of the house of Israel that killeth an ox or lamb or goat in the camp or that killeth out of the camp, bringeth it not unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation to offer an offering unto the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord. Blood shall be imputed unto that man. He hath shed blood and that man shall be cut off from his people. Leviticus says if some guy's going out sacrificing to God anywhere he wants to and just doing it in his own vicinity, then he needs to be cut off from the people. That was a pretty harsh punishment for someone who was living a religion of convenience. Ever since Leviticus was written, there's always been a temptation toward convenience. But we do not serve a convenient God. Mark 8, Jesus is very clear. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 16, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. Luke 14, so likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus had some very harsh words for those who wanted to have a little bit of their old life and a little bit of the new life. Wanted to kind of just uh, strut the fence. We got to make sure that we are not living a life of convenience. In conclusion, I'd like you to turn to 2 Kings 21. 2 Kings 21. Hezekiah has passed away. Hezekiah was not a perfect king. He made mistakes just like anybody. But he stood on the clear word of God. And then his son comes to reign. Manasseh. Verse number one, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign and reigned 50 and five years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. If you can say that better than I can, let me know. Verse number two, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. Look up here. There's a generation that came before us that made tremendous sacrifices to break from culture, not to compromise, not to live a life of convenience. We cannot be the Manassas. We cannot be the generation that builds them back up. Just a couple personal illustrations in closing. My father-in-law grew up in a Southern Baptist family. He uh, his aunt was a part of the convention very, very closely. And as he was in high school, he looked at the liberalism that was seeping into the SBC, and he realized that this is not a place where I want to be. I don't want to be a part or go to a college that is promoting this liberalism. And so uh, he broke from that. He went to an independent Baptist college in Tennessee, and he broke off ties with a lot of his family. He broke off a potential scholarship he could have had to go to an SBC school. After graduation, he was offered a job to uh, work at an SBC church and by a mentor that he knew when he was a teenager. He was offered a salary that he said he would never have until after 20 years of ministry on the Independent Baptist side. He was after, uh, offered a salary that was massive and uh, he turned it down. He went to a, a small Independent Baptist church in Tennessee with no salary, 
And after two months, the deacon said, we just raised enough money to give you a salary. We can afford to pay you $43.75 a week. There was a generation before us that made sacrifices. There was a generation before us that was willing to say no to the compromise of this world. My own grandfather was raised in a, a church that would join the United Methodists. And uh, this was a church he grew up in. This was a church where his whole family was. Uh, this was a church that he had even taught Sunday school in and labored in. But they got a new pastor that was completely liberal. And they got a pastor that was preaching against the, the infallibility of the word of God. And my grandfather had to make a decision. Am I going to stay and compromise or am I going to go and break with this church and stand for truth? Well, I'm thankful my grandfather made the right decision. He was baptized just a couple weeks later. I'm thankful that my grandfather left a heritage for me of separation. But let's not be the generation that says, you know what? They just didn't understand things. We know better. Uh, they really didn't understand the, all that was going on in our culture. We got to reach our culture. Let us not be the generation of Manassas that build up the high places that our other generations have worked so hard to tear down. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 5. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I don't know if you have a high place of culture in your heart. I don't know if there's a desire to just try to dabble in and listen to different authors and bloggers that are contrary to our doctrine here at West Coast Baptist College. I don't know if you have a high place of compromise that you, you're just tempted to uh, compromise the faith in different areas. I don't know if it's a high place of confusion. Bible refers to strife and envying as confusion. I don't know if you have strife in the dorms or envying going on between you and someone else in this room. And I don't know if you have a high place of convenience this morning. That you're just serving God because mom and dad wants you to. You're just here because everyone wants you to. You're a solid Bible college student during the week. But man, when you go home on break, it's a totally different story. It's convenient. There's no sacrifice. The question is this morning, will you take the high road? Will you give God the highest place? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Dear Lord, thank you for the example of Hezekiah. Lord, there are so many Hezekiahs that have gone before us, have made difficult decisions, have sacrificed much for the cause of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be the generation that lifts them up. I pray that you would help us to be the generation that realizes there's no room for compromise. There's no room for confusion and convenience. I will be true to the clear teachings of the word of God. Dear Lord, I pray that this invitation time that you would help all of us to either commit or recommit to the faith. In Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Shepherd.